good. Well, good morning to you. I know that's a lot of information off the top. I understand that. I get that. Um, uh, and I, I used to say, um, I remember, I remember I, I've always said this, that when we share the, that information with you, that our hope is that one of those things resonates with you. I, I truly hope that one of those things, whether it's the Wednesday nights, or I'd even mention our family camp, we'll start mentioning that again next week. Um, one of those things, one of those things really speaks to you like, oh, I got to get involved with that. But I'm starting to change my opinion. I really think we need to get involved with all of those Things. They're spread out in such a way that it just becomes part of your life. It's part of our rhythm of life where the family of God were to be together. And, and God's providing us these incredible opportunities uh, to gather and to do different things and to really be out in the community and minister to those around us. And I just want us to take advantage of those. And you'll understand why even more as we get into God's word today. But before we start, I, I really want to dive uh, into prayer before we open his word. Because uh, uh, last week we started with a joke. This week we don't. Father God, um, as we come before you this morning, uh, the topic at hand is serious. Um, it's, uh, it's real. And uh, whether we live in denial of its reality, or we just live uh, just kind of ignoring that reality, or we live in fear of that reality, Father, we all have an opinion. And Father, our heart needs to be yours. Our thoughts need to be your thoughts. Our opinions need to be based on you not our feelings. And so, fathers, we dive in today. May we all take your word to heart and allow it to change us. For, Father, we, we truly have no, no control over that in our own lives. It's up to you to help us discern your word, to help us live it out. Just give us the spirit that's willing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. Did you spend one moment, just one moment, this last week thinking about the return of Jesus? I'm going to ask it again. Did you spend one moment this past week thinking about the return of Jesus? Did you thinking about the return of Jesus, did it change one conversation that you had because you know that Jesus is coming back? Did this reality, this fact, did it inspire you this last week to repair one broken relationship? Did it change one thought that came to your mind? Did it alter one word that you spoke? Did it encourage you or discourage you from doing anything this week? Did the reality that Jesus is absolutely coming back affect the way that you handle the things God has given you in this life, from your finances to your homes to your families, whatever? Or did it even come to mind just one time this last week? I want you to let that soak in for a moment. And before anybody gets up and walks out, because I just like kicked you in the face, I'm sorry, but not really, because I can tell by the look on your face that the answer is no. No, you didn't spend one moment, not even one moment this entire last week thinking about the return of Jesus. But before again, you get up and walk out, I, I want to let you in on a little secret, you see, because about three weeks ago, when I started writing 
this message. I was confronted with this passage, and I was confronted with this question, and I wept. (laughs) Because uh, my answer, truthful answer to that question was no. Not really. Not really. That might surprise you. But even if you think about the day-to-day life of a pastor and what I'm preparing and doing and reaching and talking and doing all the things that, that God asks me to do, to think ahead to that moment when Jesus is coming back, may or may not enter into the equation for the planning purposes of this position. And so I wanted to let you know that I had the same answer you probably did sitting there today. But I can tell you that in the weeks following, since I was confronted with that question, I have truly begun seeing things in a new way. You probably could talk to the staff, and they probably might have picked up on it and probably not known why. But in the weeks since, God has prompted me on multiple occasions to do something, to act, to call, to visit. So I did. Did I have time? Not necessarily, but you know what? It's not my time anyway. It's his. Every moment we have is borrowed, yes? Did I always want to do it? (laughs) No. No. Was it always easy? No. And neither was the cross. (laughs) Could I always afford it? According to me, no. According to the one who gives me all things, I have more than enough. Folks, here's the reality. I don't have a single excuse that holds any water, and neither do you. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. Did you spend just one moment, oh, we're all busy. Did you spend one moment this past week thinking about Jesus' return? Here's my prayer coming out of today. From this point on, From this point on in your life until Jesus calls you home, will you at least spend one moment every day thinking about the return of Jesus? You don't have to dwell on it all day. You don't have to think about it all day. Will you just spend one moment each day thinking about the reality that Jesus will return, please? Please, because if you do, it will change who you are. It will change what you do each day. It will change how you do it. It will change how you think. It will change how you see people and situations. It will change everything. If you think about that conversation you had this week or that time you were angry this week or that time somebody frustrated you this week and you pause in that moment and you think about Jesus coming back for that person that you're frustrated with, that person that you're angry with, the person that fell short, Would your conversation have been different with them? Because he might come back right that next moment. We don't know, do we? So what prompted all of this? Well, the passage that we're going to begin with today. We are in the the last few weeks, the final three weeks, counting this one, of the book of Luke. There are literally just two weeks remaining. I've saved five passages, five passages that are scattered throughout the book of Luke that are all dealing with the same topic. In these five places, Jesus spent some time sharing some very important information about his return. His return. Now, he's with them, so it was a bit confusing to the people listening. Typically, in the church, when we talk about the return of Jesus, the book of Revelation is typically what we turn to. Now, Jeff might be with me. I prefer Daniel to Revelation. You? 
Yeah, I, I do. I just something about the, the prophecy. And the, it's, it's, a, it's a fabulous book. But anyway, and, and rightfully so, that we should turn to Revelation. Oh, how so many of us love the book of Revelation. We love the mystery. We love the imagery. We love the characters in the book. Everyone wants to know when those things will happen, right? What will it really be like? We want to discuss and we want to debate those events and the interpretation of those events. And all of that is well and good. And I won't say there's anything wrong with it because I don't believe there is. However, we could probably have a conversation about how effective that discussion would be to bringing anyone to Jesus. Because that might not be the most important thing for them to learn off the bat. Most of the time, a lot of the people that walk away from those discussions in Revelation end up a bit um, confused. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to sum up for you the entire book of Revelation in two words. Two words. For all of you, like, I just never understand. Two words is what I'm going to give you. Let me give you the basic theme first. Okay? The theme of the book of Revelation is simply this. To encourage Christians to persevere in their commitment to Christ, even in the midst of suffering. It's the basic overall theme of Christ's second coming in the book of Revelation. So your two words to sum up Revelation is simply this, be faithful. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. So here's the thing, you're in a small group. They're in a deep discussion about seven-headed dragons and the great prostitute of Babylon. And you're sitting there and everyone's debating their thoughts you can now politely interject into the conversation. Wow, that sounds crazy. Um, that's insane. And so let me get this right. So if I'm there, if we're there, and this is all happening around us, here's what we should do. Uh, we should be faithful, right? Yes. Yes, if you're still on planet Earth and all these things are going on around you, yes, be faithful because it's going to get crazy. Be faithful. As you read Revelation, keep that in mind. When you start feeling overwhelmed or confused, remember be faithful. Now, does that oversimplify the book? Maybe so. Maybe so, but that's the theme. Be faithful through the midst of all those trials, all those struggles, all those difficulties that could happen potentially to you. Be faithful. The second coming of Christ is absolutely one of the most important doctrines in all of Christianity. Absolutely. Many would argue that at this point in human history, this is the most important doctrine in all of Christianity. Let me share my opinion for a moment. This is completely 100% my opinion. That is all that it is. I believe that this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ's second coming, is just as important as any other biblical Christian doctrine that allows us to fully know Jesus, who he is, who he came to this earth to be, what he did, what he taught, his death, burial, and resurrection. In my opinion, you can't have one without the other. They all go together. You cannot separate the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are three in one. These teachings cannot be separated from who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do. Even the name, second coming, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? If you don't know about the first, you kind of got to learn some things before you can start to comprehend the second. The second coming is the culmination, the peak, the climax of redemptive human history. It is the final piece of the eternal puzzle for humanity. Jesus will come to this earth someday to bring in human history as we know it to an end 
to take the righteous to be with him, to punish the wicked, to establish his kingdom for all eternity. This is how the world as we know it ends. This is how human history finishes. The details and the events recorded for us will take place. They will take place as God allows them to take place. So what should our focus be on? Should it be on watching for these events, watching for these signs? Nothing wrong with doing that. Nothing wrong with watching for those things at all. Or should maybe we focus on what Jesus said was the most important thing in all of this second coming idea? We're in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 is where we'll be. So for those of you who have gone through this book somewhat in order, we're going backwards again to Luke chapter 12. This is one of the five passages that we'll cover over these three weeks. Verse 35 is where we will be. Luke 12, 35. Jesus speaking says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So just like we summed up all of Revelation with one simple phrase, two words, be faithful, we can sum up most of Jesus' teachings about the second coming with two words as well. You should write these down somewhere. If you can't remember things well, these two words, remember these two words. They're very simple, but you should do it. Be ready. Jesus' teachings on the end times all tell us to be ready. We do not We cannot know when that date or that time is coming. Back to all those signs and events and things in Revelation. Yes, they matter. Yes, there's a reason God chose to reveal those to us through John for us to read and study. But if you have every one of those signs memorized, you have every event categorized, should Jesus happen to return while you are still on planet Earth, it will come as as big a surprise as if you didn't know a single one of those signs at all. That's how it will work. We do not know when it will happen. So Jesus reminds us to be ready. Be ready. He will come at an hour when we do not expect him. Verse 40 tells us that there's an absolute certain event that will take place at a time that we cannot know. So be ready. It would be so easy to get distracted in this world that we live in. The question I open with, did you for one moment think about Jesus' second coming this last week? For most of us, the answer is no, I did not. Why? Because you're busy. You're distracted by everything around you. And we don't think about the most important thing in all of human history, not even once. That's how distracted we are. It's crazy to think about, but it's absolutely true. Well, actually, Jesus addressed this distraction issue. We'll talk about it here in a couple weeks. It would be really easy to just fall asleep, quote unquote. We are 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven and those promises were left behind to us. Have you thought about the second coming of Jesus lately? 
If you think about it, if you're willing to do that each day, then you're also going to be forced to ask yourself a question. Am I ready? If I think for a moment about Jesus' second coming, the next logical thing that I should think about is, am I ready? Am I ready? If I am ready, then daily I am going to maintain that readiness. I'm going to be working to be ready all the time. If I'm not, then I pray that God will help me through his spirit to get ready. So whether he comes tonight or he comes in 2,000 years, it makes absolutely no difference to me. How do you get ready? Well, yes, you should study. We should know what we're looking for, absolutely. But here's the thing. Get ready for when? We don't know. Because Jesus could literally return at any moment. Or, option B, he could call us, any one of us, home at any moment. Both of those things are fully unknown to us. So are we ready? Does that reality force you to think about the return of Jesus? It should. It absolutely should. To think about it, not to fear it. Apart from Christ, is there a reason to fear the second coming of Jesus? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. There's much to fear. And that's not my purpose. That's not Jesus' purpose in these messages. Our purpose is to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the love of Jesus, which casts out fear. So if these discussions about Jesus's return make you a little uncomfortable, if they cause fear within you, then for whatever reason, somehow, way, the good news of Jesus has not taken its rightful place in your mind, in your heart, in your soul yet. Would you allow it to do that today? Believer, would you stop living in fear and instead live ready? Pre-Christian, pre-believer, we don't have non-believers. We have pre-Christians, pre-believers, people that we pray will come to know Jesus. It's time to get ready to accept Jesus today. We cannot, as believers, fear the second second coming of Jesus. We are to live in expectation, actually excited expectation of it. We are to live in a state of readiness, watching, ready for his return. His coming is imminent. That's a wonderful word, that word imminent. We can't stop it, nor can we speed it up. At just the right moment, Jesus will return. So be ready. Now, as Jesus was addressing the group here, Peter spoke up, kind of scratching his head, and asked the question, hey, Lord, um, are you telling that parable to, to us, disciples, or are you telling it to everybody? Because uh, we need to know, are, are we ready? <laughs> you, you see, this struck a chord with Peter and the guys. As, as they're listening, Jesus got their attention and made them wonder, are we ready? I mean, we've been following you around now for almost three years. We, we're prepared, right? Like, we're ready for you to come when you're here. There had to be some confusion on their behalf, I understand. Jesus answered, verse 42, Who then is the faithful and wise manager from the mas- or whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them food, allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Suppose the servant says to himself, you know, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know his master's will and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now, this short parable is very, very straightforward, much like the one before it. Only this one is directed at the disciples specifically. He is answering Peter's question with a short parable for him to help understand this. The disciples, as the 12, as a result of Peter's question here, the master leaves others in charge and he comes back to see how they've done. That's nothing new. One of the most important rules when reading and interpreting the Bible, reading and interpreting scripture is very simple. If it's repeated, it's important. Got that? If it's repeated, it's important. How many times did Jesus tell a very similar parable to this? Just using slightly different characters and situations, but all with the same outcome. In this one, we have a faithful and wise manager. The master returns home, puts him in charge of all of his possessions. Here's what I love. A couple things about this parable. The first one, um, there's no time. Zero time. The master didn't tell him, or the master did not tell his servant when he would be home. Take care of business while I'm gone. That's it. He continually, faithfully served. It did not matter how long the master was gone. Now, this story is a little bit unique because Jesus says this, he's addressing a manager here, a leader, faithfully taking care of others, providing them the food that they need. He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to Christian leaders from then on. We are to be faithful, to keep serving, to keep teaching, to keep leading. Does not matter how long it takes till Jesus returns. I will return. And when I do, be ready. Be ready. And when you are, great is your reward. Well done. Then Jesus shares another side. Yep, there's another group here that he mentions. Everyone doesn't get to be a part of the winning team. I know that's not very popular in our culture, but it's truth. First, we must become his servants. Everybody involved here in this parable was one of his servants. We have to choose to follow him. He already loves us. He already died for us. He came back to life to give us the opportunity to reign with him forever. But we individually have to make the choice to follow him. He gave us free will to choose him or not. That's the first step in getting ready. But there is more beyond that. We've got to follow that up up with doing what is right, with doing what he asks us to do. We have to obey his commands. We got to live according to his word. We must love the way that he loves us. We must forgive the way that he forgives us. These things are not optional for us if we call ourselves believers. We can't just ignore his commands and just continue loving life as if everything is just fine. Because if we do, we will not be ready for his return. Did you hear what happened to that servant who lived in disobedience? This was one of his servants. He signed up for the job, but then chose another path. It's been a long time. I guess he's probably not coming back. What's the point of being faithful? Now, hopefully too many of us aren't beating the people around us or living our entire lives intoxicated. 
But uh, gluttony, eating too much, maybe, maybe. We've fallen into that temptation some in our lives. What does this look like in our context? This is the person that comes to Jesus, but they live their lives as if they never did. Sure, Jesus is coming back, maybe. But who knows when? It's been a long time. Really not concerned about it. Just going to live my life. Just going to do my thing. Don't really care. I'm going to live in rebellion to the one you claim to serve. Their end, as Jesus recorded, is not a pleasant one. Those who know what Jesus requires and choose to live in rebellion of it receive a terrible punishment. This is important in the world we live in today because there are a lot of believers that ignore his word and live and support and justify things that are in direct opposition to what Jesus teaches us. And he's telling us, Jesus in his own words is telling us there is a horrible punishment for those people that have been confused, deceived, or willingly chose that path. Believers, that's our job to speak to those people, to love those people back into the right ways of Jesus, not to ignore them. It's not our position to cast them aside to judgment. Our position is to love them back into the ways of Christ, or else they will be treated as if they were unbelievers. Jesus threw in a couple other servants as well, the one who knows his master's will and just doesn't do it. So they're not rebelling evil against it. They're just choosing not to do what God commands. And then there's the servant that didn't know at all God's commands. And it says he won't be ready either. There's punishment for both of those parties as well, but not as much as for those who are intentionally disobedient. So church, be ready. Be ready. That middle one was the person that comes to church every Sunday, hears the word, but then just doesn't live it. Just ignores it, just goes on with life. Don't, Jesus is telling us we're not ready. We're not ready if that's what we currently do. We got one more passage to cover today. It appears to be all part of the same teaching as Jesus is addressing the disciples. They're still listening very carefully. And so as they listen, what do you think their reaction was to his words, starting in verse 49? I have come to bring fire upon the earth. And now I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until that is completed. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? Wait, I thought that's how the song went. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, church, if we're honest with ourselves, believers even, if we're honest with ourselves, when we hear those words, those are hard words to hear. That Jesus is coming to bring division? I thought Jesus was the prince of peace, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. All the Christmas songs tell us peace, peace. John 16, 33, Jesus himself tells us that in him we may find peace. John 14, 27, Jesus says he'll leave his peace with us. If all of this is true, <laughs> then what's he saying? Well, see, this is what we receive by being his, by belonging to him. We receive his peace when we believe, when we trust, when we put our hope 
in him. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that Jesus is our peace. In Philippians, he tells us that God's peace surpasses all understanding. So again, what is Jesus telling us with this? Let's start at the beginning. Fire. The fire of consuming judgment, the fire of purification, the fire of power, literally, the energizing power of the Lord. It says Jesus longs to fulfill that role, that role that the Father has given to him to fulfill, but it's not quite time yet. He longs for those fires to be unleashed on this earth, but it's not quite time for that yet. The fire that consumes the wicked, the fire that refines the righteous. Listen to these words from the last Old Testament prophet in the book of Micah chapter 3. He says this in verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. He's describing the silversmith of that time and the way they would do their work as they refine that raw material, that metal, over and over and over through the fire until all the impurities were removed. The way that silversmith would figure out that it was perfectly silver, everything, all the impurities out, is as it hardened, they would be able to see a crystal clear reflection of their own face. Do you see how that relates to Jesus in our lives? as Jesus works to refine us into his image. He longs to look at us and see himself. He's bringing us through a fiery trial so that he can purify us and see that beautiful reflection of his face. He longs for that work of salvation to be completed in each one of us. That's what he's longing for. Those of you familiar with the book of Acts know that fire is also represented in another way, having to do with the appearance of the Holy Spirit. The fire was used to usher in that very Holy Spirit of God as the tongues of fire descended upon those apostles on that very day. Can you see why Jesus was excited to have those things begin happening? But they couldn't happen yet. Why? Well, he said there was a baptism that he must undergo. This was different. This wasn't the baptism of John the Baptist earlier. It's not the baptism that we experience today. No, he is referring to his upcoming baptism, his arrest, his trial, his execution, most importantly, his separation, his separation from his God, his Father, as he takes upon the sin of the entire, all of humanity for all past, present, and future sin. And he cries out, Father, Father. Why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus is speaking in very straightforward terms in this passage. He's telling the truth. That's all it is. Absolute truth. And the problem with our society today is that people don't like that. They don't like absolute terms. It makes passages like this divisive and offensive to the world in which we live. You see, Jesus came to bring truth. As a matter of fact, he defined himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on to say that no one comes to the Father but through him. Yes, that reality, that absolute truth is another thing that makes him divisive. His message was divisive. His teachings were divisive, but they don't have to be. They were truth. If one accepts them as truth, not only are they not divisive, 
but truthfully, they're the only thing that could actually unite all of humanity together. But in Jesus' day, just like ours, people had their own opinions. They have their own feelings. They have their own lifestyles that they've chosen. And anything that was or is in opposition to what Jesus taught in their life must be pushed back on. And so in today's culture, we cancel those people. We ignore those people. We silence those people. We move those people to the edges of society so that they won't have influence over people's lives. Some of you might have even experienced the family dynamic to this. I don't know your family upbringing or, or situation, but having been a youth pastor, I saw this happen many, many times to students who were rejected because they found faith in Jesus. And their family just couldn't understand why they would want to go to youth group every Sunday night. Why would they want to go to Bible study on Wednesday night? Why would they want to go serve on the mission field? Why would they want to go volunteer at camp? Why would you want to do all of these things? If you have family members and their lives are, li they are living lives of sin, then uh, they're going to push you away. Absolutely. Even though you still love them and they still love you, they're still having a difficult time being around you because you have changed. Your ways are no longer their ways. The presence of Jesus in your life has now put you at odds with them. There's an impact upon your life when you choose to follow Jesus. Jesus never denied this, okay? Jesus never sugarcoated things and said everything's going to be okay. We covered the cost of discipleship on July 3rd. If you want to go back, if you weren't able to listen to that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that very important message from Jesus of why it's so difficult to be a disciple. There is a cost to that. July 3rd, you can go back online and find that message. The cost of discipleship is great. The cost of becoming more like Jesus is great. But the rewards are so much greater. And beyond that, it's not just rewards for you personally. No, the rewards to everyone around you are incredible. The life that we can share with them in Jesus, Jesus tells us that because of him, we'll be divided, right? But he also tells us that because we are followers of him, we are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those that persecute us. So when those closest to us turn on us, our commitment to Jesus is now going to force us to double down on our love for them as they turn on us. We are going to serve them more. We are going to love them more. We are going to pray for them more than we ever had before. And they should experience the change that has taken place in your life. And when they experience that change, they're going to begin to question their motives. Why am I turning on this son or this daughter or this brother or this sister? Why are we pulling away from them? Look at how they're treating us. Now, you and I know the answer of why they're struggling. It's called sin. And that word sin has now become between us. You and I are now forgiven. And we're living in the hope and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And they are a, still a slave to sin. And that's a barrier that they can't overcome on their own. We've got to show them Jesus. It's so important. So let's review Key for Jesus, in times, be ready, be ready. How are you ready? You know the master's will. You know the master's will. You know what he's asking us to do. And because you know it, you're going to do it because you're getting ready. 
Those things, things all go together. And because you know it and you do it and you're getting ready, there will be people that do not like you. That's just part of it. William Barclay might be a name that you've heard. If you've ever looked online for biblical information, you've ever searched for a biblical commentary online, I guarantee you Barclay's uh, uh, commentary has come up. Guarantee it. Because it's open source, it's everywhere, it's easily available, and it's not bad. It's difficult to read the old English, but but it's not bad at all. The story's given him credit. I I tried to research it the best I could, but as far as I can tell, this was his fable that he invented. It sounds very much like something C.S. Lewis would write. That's why I was curious. It's a fable of three apprentice devils who were coming to earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, and they said, hey, we want to go down, and we want to ruin men. Satan asked, what's your plan for doing that? The first devil said, I'm going to tell them there's no God. The devil said, well, that won't delude too many because they know deep inside there's a God. The second one said, well, I'm going to tell men that there's no hell. Hmm. Well, that one, you'll deceive a few that way, but people know there's a punishment for sin. And the third devil says, okay, I've got an idea. I'll tell men there's no hurry. Go. You found success. Church, there's a hurry. (laughs) I don't know if you're paying attention or not, but it really doesn't matter because all of us are nearing the end of life. Regardless of Jesus comes back or not, we are all nearing the end of life. It's just truth. No one knows the hour of Christ's return. No one knows the moment he will call each of us home. If you have not taken that first step to believe in Jesus and what he did for you, then come Today, it is urgent. Don't delay, please. (laughs) For those of us that have already found, already given our lives to Jesus, I pray that the Spirit of God does not allow you to leave this place, maybe more so than any other day you've ever came to church in your entire life or ever watched online before. I pray that the Spirit of God will not allow you to leave those doors without a change of heart in this specific area. Will you commit at least once a day to thinking about Jesus's return? Just once a day. Because if you will commit to doing that, it will change a conversation you need to have because you know Jesus is coming back. Because Jesus is coming back You'll begin to work on repairing a broken relationship that lives out there in your world. It will change the thoughts you have. It will change the words that you use. It will change the attitude that you have this upcoming week. If every conversation you have, you first thought about the reality that Jesus will return. It may not happen before you have the conversation, but when you're leaving and you realize, I wonder if that person knows Jesus. He might come back for them today. I probably should go apologize. It will change the way you live life because Jesus is coming. Will you let him influence the way you make your financial decisions, the way you plan for your family, the way you do things just in everyday life? Will you spend a moment every day thinking about Jesus's return? I pray the Spirit will not let you forget that every day. He's coming back. Be faithful And be ready, Father God, as we respond to your word. We must 
respond to your word. Father, will you prompt us to respond right now? If it's a first-time commitment, they've never made that decision for Jesus. They know, they think about Jesus' return or maybe even think about their own personal death and they wonder, Father, where am I with you? If there's anybody in the room that's having those thoughts, then today they can gain that reassurement. They can be assured of eternity with you. They come before you, Father, and they repent. Father, they're baptized. And they're given a new life to walk in you as you continue to prepare for them for that day when you call them home or you return, whichever comes first. Father, let no one leave that hasn't made that choice. We want them to be ready. We want them to know you. And today could be the day they make that first step. But for us believers who are, are so caught up in life, I, I don't know what everyone answered to that question was. But I can guess a majority because I'm guessing there's a whole lot of people like me that when asked during the last week that I just spend a moment at any point in time in the week thinking about your promised return, the answer is simply no. And we've got excuses and we're all busy. And Father, as I said, with my excuses, none of them hold even a little bit of water. Father, would you convict us this morning? Would you bring us to our knees to repent that we haven't considered, we haven't even considered in this last seven days your promised return and what that means for us and our lives, our eternity, what it means for those around us, those that know you and those that don't. Father, will you perk up your spirit within each one of us to prompt us each and every day at some point in the day to just have that thought of that day when you return? And let that alter us. Let it alter our very being and the decisions we make, the words we use, the things we know we should do, the relationships we know need restored, the grace, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness that needs to be extended. First and foremost, because you extend it to each and every one of us. But second, because we know you're returning. And that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness that we extend to someone else could indeed lead them to you. And that person will then join us for all eternity, praising your name. Thank you for the privilege to gather. May your spirit move.